And I want to invite you for the next few minutes to either, you've got one of two choices right now as we spend some time together in the scripture. Number one, you can take out your Bible and turn in it with me to Ephesians chapter 2, or, and this is actually probably what I would prefer that you did, is in the, the little uh, the, the, the pad holder in front of you in the pew, there is a card. There should be enough for everyone to have one, and I want you to have one, so that whether your Bible is, is open or not, the passage of scripture we're going to read is on one side of that card, and what we are going to do with it in our time together this morning is on the other side of that card. So reach in there. If you don't have one, there's probably one in the pew in front or behind you, but I want everybody to have a card. And, and again, you can have your Bible open or you can just use the scripture that's on there. One and the same. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter two this morning. And I'll also let you know that as we go through the service today, you're going to need something to write with as well at some point. So if you don't have one, have something to write with, grab that that, uh, that sign-in pad as well. There should be something in there for you. And the reason we're doing this, the reason things may even just seem different to you this morning, is this morning we are, in fact, changing things up a bit from this point forward in the remainder of our service. Because instead of the, the usual sermon, maybe the sermon you expected to hear in coming to church this morning, as you would at this point from now until we close, we are going instead this morning to engage together in a time of what I call, and what many of you have heard me call on many occasions, a time of scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer. We're going to look at the Bible and we are going to pray. We're going to pray together from God's Word. Now, the reason I describe it that way, and for many of you this is review, but for some of you this is new information, so walk with me through this for the next minute or so. The reason I describe what we're about to do in that way is as follows. I call what we're about to do Scripture-fed is because we are going to pray together this morning, but we're not going to pray together simply whatever is on our heart. We're not going to make a list and then pray back through the list. Instead, we're going to open the Word of God. We're going to read it together. We're going to give Him because we believe it's the living word of God. We're going to give him first word, and then we're going to work our way back through the passage and pray responsively to him. So we call this time scripture fed. The reason I call it spirit-led is because while I do have a road map, I have a sense of where I want us to go this morning, I believe that God has laid some themes on my heart, at the same time we want to be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. And if I sense that he wants us to pray about something else that I didn't have in mind, I'm not, I'm not going to say, no God, my way rather than yours. We're going to respond to him and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the reason I call also what we're about to do a time of worship-based prayer is because we are going to begin and, in fact, spend a great deal of our time together not seeking God's hand because we want stuff, but we're going to spend time seeking God's face in worship and adoration and praise. And the guys, as we pray together, are going to come back up a couple of different times and lead us in additional songs and hymns of worship. Now, I know something about what we're about to do based on the description I just gave you. I know that what I just described to you, because many of you have been here for it before, it excites some of you. You're so excited that we're going we're gonna to gather up and pray together this morning, and the rest of you are terrified. You're saying, why does he do this? Why does he make us do this? I don't want to stand next to people I don't know. I don't want to pray out loud. So I know that there are those two extremes and everything else in the middle. So I'm going to affirm, reaffirm what I always say when we enter into a time like this. Prayer is voluntary. It's not mandatory. 
I will ask you at a certain point or two, perhaps to stand in a circle with others. You don't have to hold their hand. You don't have to rub their back. You just have to stand next to them. And if you so desire, you can pray out loud. And if not, you can simply communicate with the Lord silently in your heart. At the same time, I am going to make every effort, I have made every effort I possibly can to make our praying accessible. So that even if you don't think of yourself as an accomplished prayer, even if you don't think of yourself as an experienced prayer, you will be able, if you wish, to enter in and pray with us. And the reason we're going to do this with the remainder of our time this morning is because having participated in many, many services like this, having now led dozens of them myself, I believe that if we follow what God has in mind for us today, that what we're going to do can minister to our hearts and move us toward maturity as much as any sermon of simply sitting and listening ever could. So that's where we're going. That's what we're going to do. And, I, and trust me, we're going to make it. You're going to get through this, okay, with us. And you might even be glad that you did by the time we're done. And to sort of explain where we're going and give you a sense of, of what we have, what I have in mind, let me begin by saying, just as we uh, have our Bibles open and you have the Scriptures there in front of you, I want to begin by noting that, as you certainly know, uh, that this week is a, a holiday week in our nation. Wednesday is Independence Day. It's the 4th of July, when, as Americans, we celebrate the birthday of our country, we remember and we celebrate the freedoms and the liberties that we possess and that we cherish as citizens of this great land. And I'm here to say that I love the 4th of July as much as anybody and all that it represents. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's filled with me for good and great memories. However, however, even with that said, and, and maybe you feel the same way, maybe you don't, I don't know. But as I've been thinking about it and even praying about it lately, it has dawned on me that, that there is a sense, spiritually speaking, and, in, in which what we celebrate on the 4th of July, what we are reminded of, freedom, liberty, independence, individualism, whatever else sort of synonym or, or word you want to describe or, or ascribe to it, there's a sense in which the freedom we so cherish here on earth and the freedoms we so specifically cherish as Americans runs directly counter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't say that negatively, but I believe it with all my heart. Because if you know the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's this. Here's where it starts. You're dead in sin. I'm dead in sin, and there's not a single thing I can do about it. I'm a slave to sin. I, I, I am enslaved to sin. I can't get my... I'm not free. The Bible says I'm dead. Then, when I do come to know Jesus Christ, and he sets me free from sin and guilt and washes all my sin away when I put my faith in him, you know what the message is from that day forward? You can't do it by yourself. You and I are called to be utterly, what do we just sing? I lay it all on Jesus. I'm utterly dependent on him to do anything of value with the rest of my life. To walk with him. And in that sense, the message of the gospel runs directly counter to the theme or the expression or the desire for freedom. Spiritually speaking, here's what I'm saying in a simple sentence. As followers of Jesus, the pursuit of independence, spiritually speaking, is not a part of our new identity at all. We're not called to be independent. We are called to be dependent on Jesus and, you know, a couple of days ago as I was pondering all of that, sort of just chewing on it in my heart and thinking about it for a while, I came across a story. Some would say accidentally, I would say providentially. But a couple of days ago I came across a story 
of two Moravian missionaries. You may not know anything about the Moravian missions movement. I know very, very little, but I know this much. Moravia is more or less what is today considered the modern-day Czech Republic, so it's in Europe. And in the, the early 1700s, there was a great movement of the Spirit of God in that land among the Moravian people. They had been praying intensely for a long, long time, see if this sounds familiar, for God to bring revival. God, in response to concerted prayer, this is the very, very short version of the story, brought revival. And prayer led to revival, which ultimately, and this is what prayer and revival all ultimately do, led to missions. In fact, the Moravians were one of, if not the first great modern missionary movement that committed themselves to taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to unreached peoples in other parts of the world. So that's the story, in a nutshell, of the Moravians. Well, when the Moravian missionary movement began in the year 1732, their first two missionaries were men. We'll throw their pictures up on the screen so you can just take a look at them. Their names were John Dober and David Nitschman. John Dober and David Nitschman. They were from Moravia, and they felt called of God to go to the Caribbean, to an island in the Caribbean that had yet to be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, a pagan land. They believed that's where God wanted them to go. And so on October 8th, 1732, these two men got on a boat in Europe, setting sail for, I believe it's the modern-day island of St. Thomas, where the gospel had never gone before. And here's the thing I want you to know about their story. Before they left, they determined, they shared with their fellow Moravians, and they, they agreed with each other, that if they could find no other way to reach the natives of that island with the gospel of Jesus Christ, if they were persecuted, if they were shut out, if they were turned away, if, if they just couldn't get through any other way, here's what these two men, John Dober and David Nitschman, decided. We will sell ourselves into slavery. It was a slave island. We will sell ourselves into slavery if that gives us the best possible opportunity to rub shoulders with the men and women of that land for the sake of leading them to Jesus Christ. In other words, for the sake of the gospel, we'll give up our independence, literally, and in every possible way. I don't know about you, I was floored by that. Thoughts never crossed my mind, how about yours, right? That this is what I'd be willing to do for the gospel. But that's what they were willing to do. For the sake of the gospel, they were willing to surrender their independence. And as I began to think about that some more, I realized that there's only one reason anyone would ever do that. There's only one reason that anyone would ever feel that strongly, be willing to go that far for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is because they had been gripped with the truth of what is expressed in a passage like Ephesians chapter 2. If they not only read it, but they began to believe it with all their hearts. We're beginning in verse 1. Grab either your Bible or that card, Ephesians chapter 2. I know it's a long passage, but I'm going to read it in its entirety, where this is what the Word of God says. Paul writes, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Here's our favorite words at Maranatha, right? But God. Everybody say, but God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and sealed us in him in the heavenly, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, I want to restate and I want to make sure we all understand that what we're about to do with the remainder of our time together this morning is not, everybody say, we're not going to. What we are not going to do is a line-by-line theological exposition of Ephesians chapter 2. That's fun. That's valuable. We've done it before. We'll do it again. We're not going to do it here today. Instead, what we are going to do with the remainder of our time together Again, in in the vein of Scripture-fed, Spirit-led, worship-based prayer, we have just given God the first word. We believe this is the living word of God, that when we read God's word, He speaks to us through it. So we've just given God the first word. What we're going to do now with the remainder of our time is begin respond to Him. From We're just going to walk back through the passage a little at a time and respond to Him in prayer, following along at least beginning with this theme, as we recognize one of the greatest ironies of our Christian faith, which is this. This is the tension, really, around which we're going to pray this morning, which is this, that in Jesus Christ, we are, on one hand, absolutely free. Say, we're absolutely free. At the same time, and in equal measure, we are, repeat after me, we are utterly dependent. Is that not a paradox? We are absolutely free. We're free from sin, death, guilt, and hell. We are utterly dependent on him for how many things? For everything. For all things. That's a great tension of our faith. We are dependent, absolutely free, and utterly dependent. And so with that in mind, let's get started. And what I want you to do, you've got the scripture on one side, and we're going to refer to that Again, as we go through, I want you to flip your card over to the other side. Maybe you've done that already. Maybe you read ahead and you've taken a look at where we're going. But when we pray together out of God's Word, one of the things that we always seek to do, one of the things that I always seek to do, and again, if you've participated in these services, you know we seek to do, is, is to begin with reverence. We don't ask God for stuff. We don't seek His hand. We seek His face. And so what I want to do, what I want to invite us to do for the next few minutes, and I'm going to have the guys come back up because they're going to lead us in worship here again in just a couple of minutes as we begin to pray. We're simply going to begin by celebrating the joy and the reality of who God is. 
And, and, and the wonderful reality of what he has done for us. Because if you look again at these first seven verses, that's the first section we're going to pray out of. In verses 1 through 3, Paul says again, Hey gang, here's who you were before you knew Jesus. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were rebels to God. I was a rebel against God. And, and we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. But then you hit verse 4 and he says, but remember, this is who you are now. That's who you were, but this is who you are. And here's who you are now. Here's what's happened to you. Because God loved you so much, even when you were dead, made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, seating us in the heavenly places in Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ." Jesus. As Warren Wiersbe says about these first seven verses, he says, the great message here is this. As a believer, here's what's happened to you. You've been taken out of sin's graveyard and you've been seated in glory. You've been taken out of sin's graveyard and seated in glory. We've been set free. So here's what I want to invite you to do. As you look at that card and grab something to write with, the first thing you're going to see at the beginning of that card, we're just going to take a few minutes just for quiet, thoughtful, prayerful meditation on your own. You see, the first thing that it says on the other side of that card is this question. As a believer, what has Jesus Christ set you free from? I want you to take the next 60, or 90, 60 to 90 seconds and begin to ask that question before the Lord. What have you been set free from as a follower of Jesus Christ? These may be big things, sin and guilt and death. These may be very specific things. I've been set free from a foul tongue. I've been set free from a, a lustful heart. I've been set free from the, the shame of my past. I trust the Holy Spirit to lead you where you need to go with that. But for the next minute or minute and a half, just as the guys quietly play, you should just think about and write down. Maybe it's one answer, maybe it's two, maybe it's several things. What has Jesus Christ set you free from? Just take the next minute to consider and articulate that on your card there in writing. You may still be writing, but here's what I want to invite you to do. This is where we begin to pray. I'm just going to have you stand right where you are. Hang on to that card. Just everybody stand up right now. We're going to try to keep this simple, even though it's awkward because we have curvy pews. <laughs> I want to invite you just to, with that card, see what we're going to do now is we're going to take those expressions of truth that you've just written down, here's what God freed me from, and we're going to turn them into declarations of praise, okay? This is really, really simple. I just told you, or you just figured out what you're going to pray about right now. So just gather in a circle, right where you are. Don't go far because you're going to come back to this spot and you're going to sit back down again. But just maybe turn to the people behind you. Maybe six people, seven, eight. You don't want to get too big a circle, but you don't want to be two of you either and you feel like you've got to carry it all, one or the other of you. But just turn in a circle. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's the family next to you. Right now, right where you are, go ahead and do it. And again, you don't have to pray out loud if you're not comfortable with that. If you are unable to turn around and you need to slip in the row behind you, that's fine as well. And, and here's how I want to, and Dan, if you just throw this up on the screen, here's a, a way you can take that truth you just wrote down, and for the next couple of minutes, just turn it into praise. I, I, as I said, I try to make this accessible. Lord, through the cross, you freed us from. Through the cross, you freed me from. I would invite you in your circle just to pray a sentence or two prayer as you are ready, if you're willing. Just begin with those words. Lord, through the cross, you freed me from. And then just look at that card and just tell him. You already know the answer. You already have the words there. Now, tell it to him. Tell him how grateful you are for what he has freed you from. You can use that prompt on the screen if you want. Let's just do that right now in your circles out loud for the next couple of minutes. Give him your praise. As you continue to pray, the guys are just going to lead us in a song of, of worship that expresses many of the things that we have been praying about right now, one of the great hymns of our faith. So continue to pray. If your circle is still engaged in prayer, we don't want to interrupt that. But if you've come to a point where you can pause, I want to turn 
and direct your eyes to the screen. God's going to lead us in the great hymn, And Can It Be? It be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. So you go ahead and take a seat right where you are and pull that card, the scriptures back out again as we continue just in, again, just in that hymn, there's both of these great truths held in tension, absolutely free in Christ, yet utterly dependent upon Christ. And what Paul does next in this passage, what I want you to see in the next three verses, in verses 8, 9, and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, is having begun with who we were and then telling us who we are, what Paul begins to do in the next few verses is is sort of establish for us, remind us of, of where we're headed or what we are called to now that we do, in fact, know Jesus Christ. In fact, I really believe that in verses 8, 9, and 10, there, there is possibly no more succinct or clear an expression of the gospel anywhere in the Bible as in in these verses because again the message is that while we've been set free we are not our own masters look again specifically at verse 10 Ephesians 2:10 says this for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them again the message there is this you're free in Christ but you're not your own master i'm free in Christ but i am not my own master. And since I really have come to believe that anytime we take a good look at who God is and what he's like in worship and reverence, inevitably where that ought to lead us is to take a good look at ourselves in response and say, well, what does that mean? If this is what God has done for me, what am I called to do as one of his children, as one of his servants? And here's what he tells me, at least I am. He says, I'm his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Now, if you think about it, every workman, every workwoman, anybody who does and makes anything does it for a reason. Whatever they create, they create for a reason, to accomplish a task, to improve a process, uh, for someone's enjoyment, poetry, music, a literature, that things are created simply so that we might enjoy them or learn from them. Everything that's ever created is created for a purpose. Guess what Paul's saying? So are you. God created you in Christ for a purpose. Not, and here's the thing, not someday, today. He's created you to do some things, not someday, but if you're a believer today. So here's what I want you to think about for the next couple of minutes. And this we're not going to gather in circles, but we're going to take just two or three minutes on our own in prayer. And I want you to think about this question. Where has God placed me in life? Not where do I wish I was, right? Not where do I think I'm going? Not what do I hope gets worked out so that life will be better? Where does he have you today? What's your primary role? What assignment has he given you to do? If you look at the other side of your card, that's the second question. Where has God currently placed? You should change that you to to me. And here's what I want to invite you to do. Look at that card. Think about that question. And and what the the next two minutes need to be is maybe it's a time of dedication. Maybe it's a time of rededication. Maybe it's a time of repentance. Because you don't like where you are right now, where God has placed you. And you've been kicking against it. With yeah, but, and even so, and if only, and I wish. But we really believe that wherever God has us right now, he has us for a reason. I want you to think about where God has placed you. Invite you to think about it. Write it down on your card. If you were to, maybe you just want to finish this sentence. Right now in life, I am a what? I'm a mom. <laughs> I'm an employee. 
I'm a student. I'm a supervisor. I'm a, I'm a single dad. Where has God placed you right now? Just write it down. Take the next minute to do that. And then we'll go ahead and throw the prompt, right? This is just a time for quiet, silent connection with God and prayer. And here's the way I'd invite you to pray about that. Lord, help me walk according to your plan right there. Help me accept the assignment you've given me today, right now. This isn't the kind of thing we need to pray in the company of others. This is the kind of thing we need to establish before the Lord. Because again, we're utterly free but totally dependent. Let me give you just two minutes. Write down your answer to that question. And quietly, you want to bow, whatever you want to do. Ask the Lord to renew your strength. Ask him to use you where you are. Repent of the fact that maybe you don't like where you are right now. For the next minute or two, just give all of that. Again, lay it all on him. I'm going to invite you to, to pray about that right now, where you are. You know, for some of us, this is maybe this morning a very easy and glad prayer to pray. Maybe for others of us, it's very hard because it involves letting go, resurrendering all over again to the Lord. One of the things I would just remind you today is, is whether you like where God has you in life right now or not, that the best and the safest place to be is always at the center of his will, always where he wants you to be that he is faithful, and that he wants to use you where you are. Titus 2.14 says, He who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, that we might be zealous for good works. He redeemed us and purified us so that we could be used by him right where we are right now. Where you are is not a mistake. What God's doing in your life is not an accident. You can't see it. There's stuff I can't see that God's I don't understand what he's doing in my life in some ways right now. But I do know this, he's faithful. He has a plan for you and me right where you are. And so whatever you've just given to him or re-given to him, you've just done the best possible thing you can with it. And again, it helps us understand that while we're totally free, we're utterly dependent, and that's not a bad thing. And what I want you to see next in the passage, just as we continue to move through it. We see our identity in Christ, what he has done for us. We see what he has for us next, what he wants us to do. I think it's interesting as we move from a time of reverence and then a time of response, and now we want to begin just to lay some requests and some, some needs before the Lord, some specific uh, things that we want to pray about. I think it's very, very significant, if you flip your card back over again to the Scripture side of things, that after Paul does all of this, he talks about our identity, and then he talks about our direction and our calling where we are in life right now. It's very interesting that he spends spills significant ink, almost as much as he has written already in the first ten verses, on one particular theme. And that is, as redeemed people who are free in Christ and yet dependent upon him, what Paul does next is he unpacks the theme of peace. Specifically the theme of relational peace in the body of Christ between those of us who know and follow and love Jesus. He begins in verses 11 and 12. Again, just very quickly walk with me or follow me through the passage. He talks about Jews and Gentiles in verses 11 and 12. That doesn't mean a lot to us, but in Paul's day, that was the rivalry on the planet, at least in their part of the world. For millennia, Jews and Gentiles had hated one another. They'd warred against each other. They'd killed one another. They'd wanted to destroy each other, and they'd done a 
really good job of it on many, many different occasions. And that's what it says in verses 11 and 12. But then beginning in verse 13, he says this, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by his blood. For he, Jesus Christ himself, is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished in his flesh the enmity so that he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, reconciling them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. And if you think about that, what Paul is saying is this, is you hated each other, but now you're the same family. You hated each other, but now you're learning to love each other. And as I thought about that, I thought, what an incredible testimony, living testimony that must have been to the world in which they lived, to their fellow unsaved Jews and Gentiles, that as much as we've always hated each other, as much as we've never been able to see eye to eye, we're now one body and we love each other. What a testimony to the watching world that must be. And then I thought, how timely is that? How timely is that for the body of Christ in the world we're living in today, in the age of rage that we are living in uh, as believers in Jesus Christ? And, and it dawned on me that, you know, people aren't all that interested in listening to the message of the gospel. I don't know if you've noticed that. Most of the people you talk to probably don't really care. They don't want to hear it. They have their own ideas, their own plans, their own direction. The gospel's not a popular thing. But you know what? We still have the same, and it may be our best tool, the same witness they did, that God can take people who have nothing in common and make them one body in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, they all know we are Christians by the love we have for one another. And that's what Paul is saying here According to what we just read, we are, everybody say, one body in Christ. Say we are one family in Christ. We are one people in Christ. That's the message of these verses. And what a testimony that could be. And here's what it means. It means that, that as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I as men, women, and young people ought to be known far more to the world by our shared devotion to Jesus than any other conviction or opinion or allegiance we have. Listen, if people look at us and when they think of us, they think more about what we believe politically than who we follow spiritually, something's wrong. We are one body in Jesus Christ. And Paul is calling us to peace. I'm not saying there isn't peace in our body. I'm just saying there's always room for more. In Romans 14, 19, Paul says, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. And so here's the question again, and I just didn't land on this on my own opinion. This is where Paul takes us in the passage. He says in the latter half of this passage, he calls us to pursue peace. So as you flip your card back over again to the third line, and I promise we're coming in toward the conclusion, but here's the question or the, the matter each of us needs to resolve. If this is true, the pursuit of peace, what do I need to do to pursue peace in the body of Christ? Not what's everybody else's job. Not, not what my friends or neighbor, the person sitting next to me's job. What's my job, my calling? What can I do, begin doing, stop doing, change doing, do better as a believer in Jesus Christ to pursue peace in the church of God? I want you to take just a minute and think about that. And then I'm going to invite us to begin to pray together. Take a minute, look at that card, look at that question or that statement. What do I need to do before the Lord to pursue peace? This is your chance just to sort that out before him. Again, what the passage says here, verse 14, he himself is our peace. Verse 15, he came and among us established peace. 
Verse 17, Jesus came and he preached peace to those who were far away and those who were near. He, he had no bias. He had no favorites. He preached peace to all. And through him we all have our access in one spirit to the Father. We're one body in Christ called to peace. You say, well, what do we do? How can we pray about that? Well, here's what we're going to do. I want you to stand up again and just gather up in your little group there one more time, okay? Gather up in your circle of prayer. Again, we've thought about our identity being free in Christ. We've been reminded that we're utterly dependent on and called to be obedient to him. Now, I'm not going to ask you to confess what you just wrote down to everybody in your circle. That would not probably be fair or nice or easy. But with that in mind, with what Paul says in these verses and maybe what you just wrote down, here's the way I'd invite you to pray for the next couple of minutes, just a prayer of request. Dan, let's throw that up there on the screen. So again, in your circle, this is just a way you can pray a sentence or two. Somebody else can pray and you can pray after them. But it's not just that we want the Lord to establish and nurture peace, but for a reason. And here's what I want you to think about. Or here's the prayer. Lord, tear down the walls that divide us, your people. Tear down the walls that divide us so that. So that what? So that people can see Jesus for who he really is. So that our body can love each other the way that we should. So that lost people find Jesus so attractive that he's irresistible. Again, I trust you with the leading of the Spirit to to know where to go from here. But just around your circle for the next couple of minutes, here's the prayer or a way you can begin praying. Tear down, Lord, the walls that divide us so that. In your circle right now, don't be shy. Begin to lay those requests before the Lord. Let's pray. Why don't you just remain standing right where you are, and we're just going to seek to bring this together. Where we always end when we do fresh encounter is after approaching God in reverence and then just responding in our hearts and laying requests before him. The question that I always want to end with is, so what? Same as in a sermon, so what? Where do we go from here? How do we pray in a spirit of readiness? How do we take something from what we've done here out with us into the world to wherever God has us as we're living our lives? And if you grab that card, I want you to remain standing because we're just going to do this and then we're going to sing one more song and we'll be finished. But in those last three or four verses of Ephesians chapter 2, what Paul does is we think about what to do with all of this and where we go because of what we've prayed through. Here's how Paul wraps it up. And I want you to note as I read these verses one final time, this is a present tense here and now reality. Verse 19, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. You have been built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Again, that's us, in whom you, we, are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Here's the summary. We belong to God. Everybody say, we belong to God. We're secure in Christ. Say, we're secure in Christ. Say that. And we are moving toward, say we're moving toward, a specific destination. And that is heaven. We are in now the temple of God, but we are destined for glory. In other words, we're right back where we began, absolutely free and utterly dependent. Absolutely free and utterly dependent. And again, that is the best possible place for us to be as followers of Jesus Christ. Free from sin and dependent on the Lord. And so here's what I want you to do. Just turn to your circle one final time. Just turn around right where you were. 
And these are simple sentence prayers. And I don't want to use the prompt on the screen because I've just I felt compelled to change it somewhat here a little bit. But as you think about that, that God has saved you, he has redeemed you, he has called you, he has a plan for you. We are called to peace, we are called to witness, and all the rest. And maybe even just keeping in mind those two Moravian missionaries who were so devoted to the gospel, they were willing to be sold into slavery themselves. Here's the prayer. I'll just invite you, you don't even need to think about it hard because we all know unsaved people. As a, Here's your prayer. As a man of God or as a woman of God, as the case may be, use me to reach. Who do you want to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who do you want to see come to know Jesus? I'm going to give you one minute around your circle. This shouldn't be hard. It's something everybody can do. As a man of God, as a woman of God, as a child of God, use me to reach. Who do you want to know Jesus? Pray about it right now, and then the guys will leave us in a, lead us in a final song, and we'll be dismissed. Begin to pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we may today not feel like a holy temple we may not feel or look around and say, man, this, just, this looks like the dynamic house of God that Paul's talking about in this passage. But Father, it doesn't matter what we see or think or even how we feel about what we've done here. The truth of your word endures forever. We are a holy people, a chosen race, a people for your own possession who have been called and appointed and commissioned to take the good news of the peace and forgiveness and our dependence on Jesus Christ to the world. Father, thank you that you have been attentive to the prayers in this place today. Father, I pray that you will use them for your purposes in your glory in our lives. Father, we thank you that when we draw near to you, you draw near to us and that you hear your people when we pray. Father, we pray that you take all the things of truth that have been spoken and prayed here today and seal them in our hearts and compel them to our feet and our hands and our faces and our voices and let all the rest slip away so that we as always leave savoring Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's turn